Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. I know it has been a while. I apologize for the slight delay. This is the Petronerds Podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Curtis, uh, and the CEO of Petronerds. And this is episode 43. It is Monday, April 4th, 2022. Um, and we have an incredibly special guest today um, who's going to join join me for a very deep uh, conversation on LNG, which is a super hot topic, liquefied natural gas. Of course, we will be talking about way more than just LNG. Um, and with me today is a the strategy director for Tellurian, um, Renee and I'm going to botch your last name. I feel like I should have. I, I, we've known each other for a long time, so I just call it Perong. Is it Perong? Perong? Yes, How do you Perong. pronounce it? Perong. If you're not okay. Perite, you're Perong. So, oh, yes. I, I love Perong. it. So, um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you? Great. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, like I say, we've known each other for a long time, and it's an absolute delight uh, to be joining you today. Awesome. Well, okay. So we are going to cover a lot, and I tell list, you know, I tell my guests that we timestamp, um, and I'm increasingly trying to timestamp with more than just prices and, and actual information because we are over uh, a month into the war in Ukraine, and obviously the the world has changed a lot, um, not just from a, a military perspective, um, but energy is a is a, a very critical piece, and there's obviously a lot going on on the LNG front, a lot going on in the natural gas space. Um, still, lots of talk on climate change, um, but with all that being said said Monday, April 4th, uh, 2022, WTI is hanging around um, about 102 bucks. And last night we were we were below 100. Right now we're 10180. Uh, Brent is 106.36. And a natural gas in the US Henry Hub. And because I've increasingly exposed a lot of the global stuff, we're gonna I'm gonna start adding timestamps with TTF. Don't even want to get into these different ones. Well, we'll try to put this in Henry Hub. So Nat Gas Henry Hub is 580, which is really very high. And, you know, in, in the context of inflation and everything, which we'll touch on in a moment, um, it is a big deal, but 580 for natural gas. And then TTF, which is the Dutch benchmark, which is basically the European price. And, and Renee will, will talk about this more, but that price right now, from my understanding of what I can see, not perfectly on CME um, right now is around 36 bucks. Um, and that has been well under sort of our, we, we had significant highs, 65, I think we spiked um, in, uh, in February. Um, and those, those were from previous spikes. So we keep seeing these like new highs and then we're coming back down and we're sort of at this 36 range. But just for listeners sakes, that's 36 versus 580. So world's difference between European natural gas prices and U.S. natural gas prices. Now, the objective today, we are going to talk about um, the, the goal of this objective is really about U.S. and global natural gas and LNG and talking about the state of the liquefied natural gas market and what this means, because I think a lot of folks in the U.S. Um, and abroad roughly understand it. I mean, liquefied natural gas is is a is, is a smaller share of obviously the global oil and gas market. Um, and because natural gas is typically a domestic, like in the US, it is a more of a domestic market where we produce and consume it at home because it is, it is harder to transport. Um, and that's just the nature of great things about the molecule is it's easy to get out of the ground. We have a lot of it, uh, but transportation is difficult. So liquefied natural gas in and of itself is relatively new. We've only started, you know, really ramping up exports in the U.S. Uh, recently. And we have, we're basically, the U.S. is on par with uh, Qatar and Australia for um, global uh, liquefied natural gas exports. And so we have about 
you know, 33 billion cubic feet per day in sort of the global market. Um, but we're going to talk about that sort of in context. I want to talk a little bit about Tellurian um, and what you do at Tellurian. And basically, I think a lot of people do have questions on, on you know, what is the company Tellurian in 30 seconds? And what is your, you know, when are you guys slated to actually start exporting um, liquefied natural gas? And we'll talk about the U.S. We'll talk about production, LNG exports. We'll talk about global, sort of the global demand, where it's going. Obviously, the European energy crisis. And because you and I are big China nerds, I think we will we will touch on China at the very least. And there is a chance if this goes a little long for listeners that we might break this up into two episodes. Um but with that, I'm going to let you sort of marinate. And I want to talk a little bit about what's going, time stamping this with what's going on in, in the global environment. And I've been doing this with listeners. And at least, even if I don't record her, I do this with, actually, sorry, with guests. Uh, we end up talking about the global market a little bit. And then they get all like... Um, rallied up and then we sort of talk into it. So of course that list I just gave us and, and the listeners, uh, I'm sure Renee and I are going to go on a bunch of different tangents, um, which I think will be great for you guys because she's a wealth of knowledge. Um, honored to have her and um, super pumped. So with that, we're going to talk about a little about the market and we will get back into it. Okay. All right, folks. So I mean, it's April 4th, 2022. And with that, I mean, the war in Ukraine, the basically the the since I've spoken with you guys, we had Matt Gallagher on the podcast. That was a couple weeks ago. Um, I lost, we both lost the bet in betting that um, the we were going to lift sanctions on Iran. I was pretty skeptical that the U.S. would actually lift sanctions on Iran for a number of different reasons, but that has definitely fed into the U.S. and the International Energy Agency uh, doing very significant releases from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve or p- planned releases, um, which it did impact the market a little bit, but not enough. But with that being said, this war in Ukraine, uh, basically troops, Russian troops have moved out of the northern parts of the suburb sort of Kiev. And with that has left a lot of devastation, a lot of really bad um, and very sad imagery of bodies. Uh, there's a lot of talk of war crimes. So it's 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 serious in that uh, we're not looking sort of any end in sight. I think the Russians have certainly changed tactics, um, but it's not looking like we're going to see a, a, a ceasefire anytime soon. Um, so that's sort of the, the permeating the backdrop of everything that we're going to be talking about today and, and what's going on in the world. Um, and with that being said, I think it's really important to think about where country the trade um, and oil prices, seeing where they're at today, about 100 bucks. Crude is moving, um, not just crude, natural gas, crude and coal and, and actually and grain are all moving out of Russia. So um, India and China are taking these barrels. They are taking them at a discount. I know there's a lot of disconnect when you talk to traders versus analysts and when you what you hear in the stock market. But it is very clear to me that fundamentals are sort of winning the day. These barrels are moving and they are moving at a discount. We are hearing this out of India. We are hearing this out of China. And we did see uh, we did see a lot of Russian. Uh, we, we've seen Lavrov has was just in India. I believe he was just in China as well. So they're making their moves. These countries are are actively meeting with them. um, And India is kind of in a tricky position with this. But that's sort of a backdrop. We do have, obviously, very intense global inflation. We have inflation well above 7% in Europe. We have inflation near 8% um, in the U.S. We just had the uh, personal consumption price index come out in the U.S., which was well above. It's it's over 6%. The last time it was there was 1982. Um, So we're looking at I mean, I th- the talk of recession is a lot stronger, I think, than folks want to probably admit, but we're hearing it a lot more. Um, and on the energy front with an OPEC, so last week, Renee and I were talking and, and OPEC, uh, that was a 
extremely short meeting on Friday. Uh, they agreed to basically increase the barrels, which they've been agreeing to add 400,000 barrels to the market every meeting. It's basically not even a meeting. It's just a rubber stamp. Um, they haven't hit that target of increasing 400,000 barrels per day each month. Um, the countries that could increase output, which they are. I mean, Oman is increasing output. We're seeing UAE is going to look to tick up. Saudi is obviously going to look to tick up. But the International Energy Agency was kicked out basically in terms of the uh, secondary sources. So if you if you scroll through like the OPEC Bolton and Renee smiling here, because we all know like the basically the IEA serves as like a secondary source for OPEC to to show these uh, data points of of who's producing what, which country. Um, and OPEC basically as a symbolic sort of move, kicked them out. And and I'm not a big fan of what OPEC's doing. I'm, I'm not backing Saudi or UAE or anything. And I think they're definitely taking a pivot to autocratic regimes. Um, but I think the most of the industry is is realizing that the International Energy Agency has no idea what they're talking about anymore. And so this was symbolic move by OPEC just to tell IEA to stick it because uh, Fatih Barol was basically uh, renewed as the as the leader with a unanimous vote um, of the International Energy Agency. And they're, uh, we're, we use them, the IEA, as a, as a data point for, for U.S., not to, uh, for global crude oil supply and demand, um, while well, simultaneously they're talking about not asking for investment in, in oil and gas demand, uh, in oil and gas um, to curb the short-term price spikes, but also telling people in their 2050 report to not invest at all beginning last year into oil and gas. So very confusing. That's why they kicked them out. Um, and at the same time, so the Biden administration, obviously, I put a couple LinkedIn posts on this. Um, the Biden administration announced a, this massive uh, uh, SPR release last week. Um, they did this very late at night. And so this is, to put in context, I mean, this the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, well, not, it's not intended for inflation. And I do think that uh, the administration is using it more for inflation than they are for necessarily an oil price spike or fundamentals, because I do think these barrels are flowing. But that being said, 180 million barrels is stated to be released. That is a record sale that is about to be about a million barrels per day. Now, that is significant because we doesn't look like the Iran thing is happening. And the Iran thing would have added basically, you know, doing an Iran deal would have added basically a million barrels per day to the market. Um, and that's not going to happen. So lo and behold, we do this SPR release and it's a million barrels per day. Um, and then you do have the administration saying things like, hey, we're adding this million barrels per day now. And by the end of the year, we'll have all this crude oil coming on. And so we're providing the stopgap. And, and they're saying, look, we're telling the producers that we're going to buy those barrels back from them. So we're giving them this wonderful signal that we're here for them. It's really fascinating to me that they're not, um, you know, the way they're handling this, the way they're talking about this, they're not talking about infrastructure. And we will definitely get into the LNG. I won't step on your toes because we, I want to get into where, where the administration has talked about. Um, obviously, we, we signed an agreement or told the Europeans when Biden was over there last week that we were going to offer 15 billion cubic meters by the end of this year, by the end of 22, an additional 15 billion cubic meters this year, and then 50 billion cubic meters. Um, we're going to convert that over into BCF a day. Surely we're uh, 50 billion cubic meters by 2030, which it's actually quite a bit of gas was a nice price signal. We did see prices spike on that. And for listeners who people who argue with me on, online and Twitter and um, LinkedIn, that is a signal when the administration says something and they don't actually do anything and they can move prices. That's the same damn thing they can do when they say they want to 
let's build Keystone Excel. Let's build a pipeline. It is proof that the administration does have the power to um, impact prices and impact signals by investment because this has given a wonderful signal to investors for natural gas, for liquefied natural gas exports, which is huge. Um, and on the last thing I'm just going to say is the backdrop is that we do have a lot of things happening globally. And that is that Carrie Lam, um, the executive leader of Hong Kong, has said last night that she is not going to run again. So um, that's a big deal. We had the takeover of Hong Kong uh, during COVID from China. Um, and Carrie Lam, who basically allowed this all to happen, she's she's stepping down. I think that means that China is going to be putting in place a, uh, a, a, a stronger leader that's, that's basically going to be going um, closer to China. So watch that space. That's very big. Hungary just had their elections. Um, Viktor Orban was reelected. Um, France is about ready to have elections, which is a big deal given that, you know, France, I mean, Europe is importing all this uh, LNG from the U.S. France wants to ban uh, or actually called the U.S. very dirty gas and didn't want it um, not that long ago. This was last year. Uh, Serbia is having elections, I believe, and Pakistan just had a no confidence vote on their leadership. So a lot is happening in the sort of the backdrop of the political space. Not something we have to talk about in the podcast. It's just really important, I think, for listeners just to throw that in the back of their head when we're talking about um, U.S. and and U.S. like liquefied natural gas and what we're exporting. So with that, um, Renee, why don't you tell us a little bit about, and I know I've got your head spinning with all the, that information because she wants to talk about all the stuff. So we totally can. Um, but before we get into all that, can you tell us a little bit about um, Tellurian? This could be like 30 seconds. I know we don't have to get, this is not a Tellurian focused podcast, but um, you, know, you do strategy at Tellurian. And I think a lot of listeners probably want to know what is that? Uh, tell us about doing strategy at Tellurian. I mean, that's a lot of what we've been just talking about. But also, really, where is Tellurian in the... You guys are not yet exporting liquefied natural gas. You want to be, you're going to be. But where? Um, what are the volumes? Where's the facilities? And are you permitted? Great. Uh, well, again, Trisha, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's an honor to be here with you today. So Absolutely. Tellurian was founded in 2016 by Sharif Suki and Martin Houston. And anybody in the energy space probably knows those two names because uh, they were the godfathers of US LNG. Um, so Sharif uh, founded uh, Chenier and basically when the shale revolution happened, said, strike that, let's reverse it, and uh, was the first liquefaction facility in the United States. He basically started the US LNG movement. Um, and uh, he left to form Tellurian with Martin Houston, who is the former COO of BG Group. And it is a company that is going to be building 27.6 million tons of liquefaction capacity in Southwest Louisiana. Um, we are fully permitted. We are sold out for the first two trains with three customers. And we are currently in the financing process to finalize the project. Um, we are currently speaking with about 40 to 50 uh, banks, and we're working through the financing process. Uh, we have already issued limited notice to proceed on the facility. And uh, really, it's just um, a really exciting time here at Tellurian. The fundamentals have never been better. And I think we're ready to do our part to address the global LNG balances in the long run. And I only wish that we could build the facility tomorrow to be exporting all that 27.6 million tons, which for your listeners, to put that in perspective, the global LNG market last year was 382 million tons. So our, the fully permitted plant is a substantial part of the global LNG uh, market as it stands today. 
Can you just for us, because that's a, that's a great recap. I still think, um, and I, that's because maybe because I think in in a in an MCF a day and a BCF a day world a bill of thousand cubic feet and thinking about what our wells produce versus, and then I take that all the way up into the global side. And can you just say, so how many, what's the BCF a day? So right now we are at liquefied natural gas export capacity in the U S we're, we're pushing 12, 12 BCF a day, technically on capacity. I know we're not pushing that much, but we actually last month from my, from what I saw, we were pushing almost a t- well over 11 BCF a day exports. Um, but what's, what is the, your capacity additions to that? What's the BCF a day or, or, if it's under BCF, that's fine. But what what is that on a daily basis? Uh, great question. And when will and that thanks go into place? For keeping me in BCF a day is us uh, LNG folks talking million tons. Um, so the full twenty seven point six million tons converts to about three point nine BCF a day total. Um, and as Trisha mentioned, we are currently exporting about twelve. Some days pushing thirteen BCF a day of uh, LNG in the United States which represents Um, about 22% of global LNG supply right now. And also, fun fact, in March, the U.S. was the largest LNG exporter in the world for the first time. Yeah, I saw that it was, uh, and it was, that was in, I saw it was MPTA. It was in the tons figure, so the conversions, (laughs) but it was like 7.8. So we were, we were above Australia and Qatar. And so Australia and Qatar and the U.S. are the three big powerhouses for that. So that. 3.9 3.9 BCF a day, that is nothing, that is not a small figure. Um, that's nothing to scoff at because that's basically, you know, adding a third of our, uh, or more than a third of our capacity currently right now. And I think, I think that's a little tricky for folks because our slated capacity is, it's showing, I mean, the, the EIA shows us under 12 for 2021, but it's showing us, I guess, for 2022 that we will be hitting 14 BCF a day capacity by the end of 2022. And I'm guessing yeah. we are pushing, like you said, the 12 BCF a day, I, it's between 11 and 12 sort of on a monthly basis. So we're, we're pushing those figures and obviously a significant amount of that liquefied natural gas right now is going to Europe because we're trying to, to offset that. Um, and the, but you said that, sorry, the 3.9, I just want to back up for listeners, 3.9 BCF a day. And when does that capacity come online? We expect to start operations in about 2026. So these are giant refrigerators that take quite a lot of time to construct. So uh, big refrigerators and then big, uh, I guess, the regas uh, facilities on the other side take some time to build as well, uh, but a lot shorter than it takes to build the liquefaction facilities. Absolutely. That's great clarification. And I think uh, we will get into, I definitely want to get into um, sort of the backdrop of the investment side of that, um, not just of your facility, but in general. And I think we have, I mean, we sort of have that backdrop given that the administration has said we're going to increase these exports, which means the the one thing the U.S. needed was sort of this incentive, uh, basically the signal for investors to say, hey, let's underwrite this stuff and let's build it. Because um, this administration was definitely on the fence given that um, natural gas, they consider a a very a dirty fossil fuel that they they weren't sure whether they liked it or not. And I think obviously the world has changed with this this war in Ukraine. And so now the U.S., uh, this administration is behind it. Um, but that still means that you need um, that still means you need pipelines to be built out. Um, and so that's all that's kind of a, a, a t- topic that I want to get into. But um, so. We basically, we agreed on this 1.5, the BCF a day, or no, sorry, the BCM that we agreed under the Biden administration, 50 billion cubic meters by 2030, and it was uh, 15 billion cubic meters by the end of this year. And I believe that's 
one and a half or or just under one and a half BCF a day by the end of this year, um, being adding sending that to Europe. That's not a small volume. I mean, that's a we, we're going to have to work pretty hard. I think on the capacity. I mean, really pushing the envelope on the capacity side to get that because we're basically at export capacity right now. So that's going to be every incremental additional available molecule space, right? It's all going to be pushed as fast as we can and running it hard and sending that all to Europe. Yeah. I mean, as it stands right now, every LNG facility, not only in the United States, but in the world is getting extremely strong price signals to send as much as they possibly can into the market. So as you mentioned, a lot of, in fact, most of the US LNG being produced right now is going to Europe because that's where the market signals are. And actually most of Europe's LNG imports are coming from the United States as opposed to any other uh, region in the world, partially as a result of how flexible US supply is. There are no destination uh, restrictions and LNG tends to flow to the premium market that needs it the most. Um, The problem is there are certainly bottlenecks, both on the liquefaction side and then from the import regasification side um, in terms of what can be accomplished in the short term. Right. So um, in the short term, U.S. is producing basically above nameplate capacity. As of last month, um, U.S. LNG exporters were producing at about 104 percent of nameplate capacity. We saw the. Yeah, it's uh, everybody is producing at absolute full tilt um, and you're still seeing record high LNG prices, again, reflecting just extreme scarcity across the entire world. Right. So um, there's really not that much we can do in the short term to boost liquefaction capacity, at least not with any technology that I'm available or I'm aware of today. Um, But we have seen the first, I believe, five cargoes exported from Calcasieu past LNG this year. Um, So that's a little bit of incremental juice that we can add into the market. Um, But again, really, there's not much we can do in the short term. Can you just tell about where where is that and which company? Yep. Uh, That is Venture Global's 10 million ton LNG facility, also located in southwest Louisiana, actually uh, just in Louisiana. Um, And that project came online this year. So I I don't know how the administration is doing their math to get an extra BCF and a half, uh, you know, 1.5 BCF a day. I'm looking at facilities and looking at the AIA and the approvals as well. And they... It seems like it's going to be the full tilt, right? It's that 104. Uh, one, it's I think the signal is really important. I do think the industry tends to, you know, we, we've argued about this before a little bit. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest, I'm, I'm certain that the listeners, I've, I've certainly had fun conversations with Sharif Suki on all of this stuff. But um, I think the industry tends to push the move the needle, push the envelope a little bit um, with when you p- ask them to do something, the industry responds pretty well. So the 104. The, just the example that you said, the 104% of capacity um, it is a is an example of that. Of we're, We have a nameplate capacity. We're modestly above it or on certain months. So I, I'm not saying we can't we can't create capacity for liquefied natural gas exports out of thin air. That's that's not something we, we can do. But we did have um, signals that weren't quite there. Right. Um, so everybody's got to be on board. So the producers have to be on board and, and the, you know, getting the backing and everything. And if everybody's leaning into this and, and getting excited, I do think that helps a little bit. Um but on the capacity side of, do we have anything left to permit that has it in the near term that could be permitted? Because where this administration was, I don't know, even six months ago, um, they weren't, uh, they were 
one, they don't have a lot of folks. I don't, I don't, to my knowledge, they don't have anyone who really understands hydrocarbons um, within the administration. But, and I'm, I know they have various advisors and Amos Hutchinson is, is talking a lot. He's former, I believe he's former Chenier, right? Um, he's talking Chilean. a lot about, you know, oh, he's former Chilean. That's right. Uh, I've met him. He's, uh, is a nice guy, but I mean, he's changed his tune a little bit on, on natural grass. And he's, he's been talking now about, you know, the different advising. So it seems like they're, they're getting a little bit more up to speed on how things work. Um, and they're leaning in, but I don't think they're, think they're going to create this out of thin air, but I wonder on the permitting side, is there any more that they need to do, um, that they maybe hadn't done? Yeah. So on a political perspective, you're right. I think the administration is getting a crash course in reality about, how markets work and how necessary uh, not only natural gas, but all hydrocarbons are, right? I mean, 85% of global energy supply is supplied by uh, natural gas, oil, and coal. And that's something you can't just ignore. Um, But from a permitting perspective, I think that the administration has, especially since this Ukraine crisis, um, changed its tune a bit. Um, we saw that prior to the crisis, actually, uh, maybe an ill-fated few days prior to the crisis, uh, the FERC issued new rules saying, well, issued an opinion saying that they were going to start considering greenhouse gas emissions and permitting new natural gas infrastructure. And since the crisis happened, they've sort of walked back the tone on that. They're going to start asking for comments from uh, from the public on that rule. And they've also made it clear that all permitted U.S. liquefaction projects, and I believe all permitted uh, infrastructure projects in general, will be grandfathered in and will not have to deal with the sort of new rules that are being proposed on, on, on a greenhouse gas emissions basis. And that, that's also, so that's I think positive. it's the, that is positive, but it's also the expand. It's like, it's a wonder of that because there has been expansion increases, right. That have been recently approved of the, um, very recently, right. The, the facilities that were basically wanting to expand their capacity, they, they have been given that, um, those permits, but up to date, it has been harder to get a permit and longer to get a permit, um, than it has been to actually build a facility. Um, and that, to me is is pretty ridiculous. Um, so and this up into ve- up into the war um, in Ukraine, I think the the at least what I was hearing out of DC um, by folks close to it was that it this administration just didn't the excuse with, that they were giving folks was that the market did not need uh, the natural gas, which I thought um, one does explain that they truly don't understand how hydro the hydrocarbon market um and two is that they were saying that at the same time that they were asking for crude oil from saudi arabia and united arab emirates and venezuela and iran um and so now we're in this pickle so it it is a situation that no matter how much they uh i think the administration wants to push through their green agenda it's 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 just not going to happen and i think the world is sort of dealing with that um, crash course in reality. And it's, I, I've said this on previous podcasts, if solar and wind could solve this problem and stop the war in Ukraine, I'm all for it. Um, so it's not about, it's not about whose energy wins. It's about, it's just a really serious issue. And, um, I think folks, uh, we've been hearing about folks in Ukraine that have not had, you know, they haven't had hot water, they haven't had gas supplies, they haven't had heat or electricity for a while. So hopefully that's changing in some of these cities where folks have left. Um, but with that, we can, we can, We've digressed a little bit, which is which is totally <laughs> fine. Um, I think I want to talk a little bit about U.S. production, and I want to tie this back because I think it's really important for listeners of that 
one, we just have a huge, we know like the global oil market, right? It's pretty easy. It's a hundred million barrel a day market, roughly. We're producing 11 million barrels in a change. So we can, we can do the math very easy. The gas market is a bit more nuanced. I don't think people, you know, probably appreciate what's like the total. And I kind of bucket it into, you know, global gas production, at least from 2020 BP data, global gas production is, we were shy of uh, 40,000 or 400 billion cubic feet per day. So we were shy of that. We were, I think it was around 370 billion cubic feet per day for total production for 2020. And that was obviously down because it was 2020 and it was COVID. Um, consumption was just under that, right? So c- supply and demand, we, consumption was like 368 BCF a day. Um, and China, just to put this in context, China at the time consumed about 32 BCF a day. Um, and the import about 15, and we I only say this because we're going to get back to the China thing. And it's, it's really important to contextualize you know, how much people are producing and consuming. And they import about 15 billion cubic feet per day. And I know that that's went up recently. I have my opinions on that. We will talk about that. Um, but that's the market of sort of under 400,000 or for, yeah, under under 400 billion cubic feet per day. The U.S. now, to put this in context, the U.S., we had production dropped a smidgen in January, I think cause, largely because of weather across all states. Um, but for gas, growth withdrawals were nearing, we were at all-time highs. Uh, the previous month of, of uh, December data was about 120 BCF a day of gross withdrawals in the U.S., just monstrous amount of production. And the reason I say it's monstrous is because the rig count is extremely, is still extremely low for natural, for dry, going after natural gas, right? Of just rigs directed towards natural gas. Now it's obviously ticking up. We're seeing, you know, really good activity in the Haynesville and the Marcellus. Um, but that activity had been low because prices were, one, weren't as, as responsible, but prices had been going up and you still didn't see the signal from the gas rigs. And part of that's because you can't just continue to invest and drill for oil and drill for gas out of the Marcellus when you don't have pipeline capacity. So, you know, folks who are looking to increase output, they can't continue to increase output and invest for that output in future years if they don't have the capacity to actually move it, Um, because that will just, you know, fill up all the pipeline capacity and then you have differential blowouts and then their price goes down. So that's not fun for anyone. Um, And that's part of this sort of investment this investment piece and the ESG and the signaling, which is a really big deal. But that being said, that 120 BCF a day of gross withdrawals, I just can't emphasize it enough because these numbers are, I mean, the Marcellus is about 35 BCF a day right now. These wells are 16,000 MCF a day. The decline curves look good. I mean, in the last three years, they've actually improved year over year. And yes, we have longer laterals, but we are seeing, we're about 11,000 foot for an average Marcellus lateral. And we are not seeing diminishing marginal returns on that. The longer those laterals go, we're not seeing a decline in productivity, which is awesome. And it's partly why we've seen, you know, Marcellus production really tick up. Um, And then Haynesville, which is just, I love it because it's like one of those good old stories that it's like people loved it and they stopped loving it and they love it again. And still, you got a lot of private producers. It is Haynesville is the story to watch because it has a lot to keep. I mean, there's a lot of running room. There's a lot of running room left in the Marcellus, but I think there's a lot of running room in the Haynesville, particularly because you you can build a pipeline out of it. But the Haynesville is producing about 12 BCF a day, 12 billion cubic feet per day. Um, just in context, in 2012, the Haynesville was producing eight BCF a day. That declined to four B. So four BCF a day in 2016. And now we're at 12 BCF a day for the Haynesville. So we went from four to 12 from 2016 to 2022. And these are just, you know, rationing up. But these are with private companies who are just chugging away um, and doing this. This is because this is a smaller molecule. It is easy to get out of the ground. And these are, I mean, these wells are like, 
like 19,000 MCF day, they're flipping monsters. Um, and these are still, I wouldn't say shorter laterals, but we're, we're still well under 9,000 foot on the, on the lateral side. So there's, there's more activity that can be done. I think more consolidation, obviously you have more private players. Um, so it's just an exciting space to watch, but it means we have a ton of this natural gas production. And that's not even talking about the associated gas of the 17 BCF day coming out of the Permian, which you're definitely going to have to continue to build that infrastructure and move that. So that's in-basin in infrastructure on net gas. And then we have a crap ton of natural gas coming out of the, out of the Colorado, um, out of the DJ, um, out of the Williston Basin. And all that, as you're getting north in the Rockies, all that also to not just one, you we're not, you can't flare it, um, from an ESG perspective, you're, you know, flaring is not a, is not a good answer to anything that's wasteful, but it requires building out pipelines and doing stuff to move it. But we just have a ton of natural gas production in the U S and, and truthfully, I think we're sort of at the, you know, tip of the iceberg in terms of if we had the LNG capacity right now, and you just said, Hey, producers go on, we need another five BCF a day. I don't think it would take much. I mean, I, I think they would do it very quickly. I would agree with that. Um, yeah, and and I think, you know, to put it also into perspective about Tellurian, we are looking to be fully integrated up into the Haynesville, right? So I agree with you. The Haynesville is a tremendous basin. We understand it really, really well. The economics are truly compelling, and we we want to be uh, integrated all the way up into uh, into the basin. And we actually are still uh, currently drilling for uh, gas in the Haynesville. So again, we really know this basin extremely well. Um, but to your point, we do need more infrastructure across all basins, right? Not only in the Haynesville, I think ultimately we're going to need to build more pipelines within that basin, especially to serve the growing LNG uh, demand load in uh, the Gulf Coast. And also to put some numbers to that, um, we do have about uh, 85 million tons or uh, like I say, about 13 BCF a day of capacity existing now. But that with just the projects that are sanctioned today is going to be about 16 and a half BCF a day, not including driftwood. Right. So there is a huge pull of supply from the LNG markets um, that needs to be met from basins like the Haynesville. Um, I think it would also be you know, excellent if we could have an extra pipeline coming down from the Marcellus because, you know, I think people forget that the Marcellus basically produces as much, if not more gas than the entire country of Qatar, which mm -hmm. prior to last year was the largest LNG exporter in the world. And that's just in a couple of states in the United States. So the resource base is phenomenal. Um, and then, yeah, finally, I think we have a couple BCF a day running room left in the Permian before we have to start flaring gas. And I, I think the numbers that we've run, it, that's equivalent to about 800,000, maybe a million barrels a day of oil uh, that you can produce out of the Permian before you start running into gas pipeline infrastructure constraints. So, um, and I, I'm curious if those are the same numbers that you're seeing, um, but really there is a, a huge need for additional pipeline capacity out of these major basins to serve the LNG demand pull coming from the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and uh, yeah, but ultimately it's a tremendous resource base. Yeah, I mean, I think those are great numbers. I like that you contextualize that. I think the the Permian thing is a big deal. I 
yeah, last year, if people, if listeners remember on the podcast, I, I always get a little anxious about nat gas pipeline capacity. I like the overbuilding of pipeline capacity because it allows for running room to build out to continue to produce crude oil and natural gas. And you need, you know, we tend to always overbuild out pipeline capacity, but ultimately that is really how, how markets fundamentally works. You need that capacity to be the flexibility to increase the output. So to be scaffolding, I think I get a little anxious on um, always try modeling out uh, natural gas production and crude oil together, especially in the Permian, because the Permian, as people know, is a very, I mean, the API gravity changes across the play. You have, um, in, you know, we tend to have as API gravity and thermal maturity in depth um, in the geology changes. Obviously, the you get monster oil production and high-pressured wells in the deeper parts of the Delaware Basin. That's fantastic. But with that, uh, you get a lot of natural gas. I mean, that natural gas, that high pressure is, I mean, that's part of what's driving your high oil production. And so you get these monstrous um, natural gas figures. Um, and that's that's what's driven the 17 plus BCF a day of, of associated gas production. You do actually have a handful of rigs drilling for natural gas as well in the Permian Basin. But you really have to have, you know, you have to have the capacity. Um, and I think 2020 obviously gave people a huge reprieve um, because you had a, a drop in in drilling um, activity and you had a drop in oil production and therefore you've gotten a little a little maneuverability on the gas side so you weren't drilling these monster swells you know to the extent you were in the Delaware and so you have that capacity that being said is that people ramp up as as Exxon's ramping up as Chevron's ramping up as everybody's ramping up um, that you're going to near those numbers and I think that we probably tend to undershoot both on the oil side and the natural gas side is that, you know, when you get, if we're under, if anyone's undershooting on the oil side in the Permian or elsewhere, they're, they're 100% undershooting on the gas side because you get the gas with it. Um, and then as these basins, and I've said this in previous podcasts, and I know you know this, but as we stack up the, you know, the, the production, as a, we see this in the Williston Basin, as we stack up this production, as these wells mature and yeah, the oil declines, but it's still producing, you know, you still have this massive wedge in that decline producing, you know, you're not doing much activity in the Wilson Basin and you're producing well over a million barrels a day of crude oil. Um, and you're producing, uh, you know, three times that for natural gas. And that's from associated gas. That's these older wells have hit the bubble point in the reservoir and they're just producing more natural gas. And that's the thing you're going to see with aging wells in the Permian as well. And I think that's that's just extremely important for people to realize it's, it's great. We have this amazing asset and this tremendous resource base, but you have to build out the infrastructure. And I think that's that's a really critical thing to me is on this uh, investor pressure and ESG front. Maybe we can loop this back a little bit to um, something that you you have a great chart um, in your one of your presentations that uh, Renee gave a presentation um, with the Energy Policy Research Foundation and the Global Gas Center that I was on about it was in February um, and I chaired a or I, I moderated a panel. Um, after hers. Unfortunately, I didn't get to moderate her panel, which is annoying. Um, but she gave a great presentation. And one of these slides that I asked for to talk about this, this is fantastic. I can. Um, so one of the slides shows, uh, you basically call it the continued drain of energy dense investment sort of in the space. Um, and you're looking at the annual investment in primary energy supply. And, and essentially, it's it's the dollars going into renewables, the dollars going into non-renewables, the share capex, and, and sort of what you're getting out. And, and the story is basically more money is obviously going into renewable um, and less money is going into non-renewable. And that non-renewable would be 
um, crude oil, natural gas, um, and coal. And we're not getting, obviously, if you're not investing in it, you're not getting as much energy out. And I, the reason I, I know this is might be hard for folks to think about, but I, I think the signaling is extremely important because people push back so much of saying, you know, the politics doesn't matter. And it absolutely does because you have to signal to the market that you're open for business. I mean, every successful country, um, look at look at Ireland and their ability to pull in an investment. Um, you have to basically show a stable, predictable environment to do business in um, with a, a regulatory framework that works and rule of law. Um, China doesn't have that. The U.S. does. But the U.S. doesn't have that in the sense that when, when you say, we have this executive order on climate change. We're not going to have lease sales in the Gulf of Mexico. We're not going to have lease sales on federal land um, in lower 48. Um, and hey, we don't know really know what we're doing with natural gas. And, and we're going to regulate these pipelines on FERC. And we're going to consider CO2 emissions. And it, there's all these unknowns. And when they start adding more and more, it gets it gets a little hairy in terms of like, well, where is this administration going to be, you know, a year down the road? So when you hear Jen Psaki, you know, at the White House and you hear other folks out of the White House saying um, that they want the U.S. producers, Hotchins, almost Hotchinstein said, the, hey, U.S. can produce. If the producers want to produce, they can produce. You know, we're not stopping them. It's like, yes, but you're also not telling them you're ever going to build a pipeline. So they are not seeing these signals. And, and uh, Janet Yellen, uh, SEC, the the stuff that's coming out of different entities is really important because they're talking a lot about climate change and they're talking about regulations. And the Security Exchange Commission is talking about really pushing and pressing on ESG on on um, environmental, social governance metrics, which they don't give a, they don't talk about the social governance at all. They talk about only environmental and and making companies put their scope one and scope two emissions. So the fact that they're leaning in and hammering on that as we're going through this energy crisis, um, it isn't a great signal. It's kind of a mixed messaging of, of what's going on. And I think it's it's really critical to think about how that sort of funnels down into the investment space. I mean, you guys are at, I mean, you feel that directly in terms of how investors and how people feel about the space and whether or not they want to put in money to it. Um, so if you can maybe think about that and also talk about this chart, I would, those are, those are not really questions, uh, but <laughs> topics of discussion. A lot to unpack there. Um, yeah, I think there is a degree of incoherence um, between what is said within different levels of government. And that's a function of ambition versus reality, right? Um, I think that we have seen the, the, you know, with the rubber hitting the road, uh, the administration has made it clear they want to have additional oil supplies to uh, manage pricing, um, and they are willing to send those signals to the market that they're, you know, okay with LNG and that it's necessary to achieve their geopolitical ends. So I think that they're sort of reaching for those right answers, and, and, and I think reality will continue to teach uh, those lessons. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if I were to characterize it, it, it is, should be the patriotic duty of every bank and regulator to permit every project and to finance every project that possibly can be done on a commercial basis, too, um, uh, given the realities of the situation happening in Europe. Um, and even prior to that, right, like I think the market has sort of temporary amnesia. Most people think that on, you know, February 24th is when the crisis began. And, and yes, I mean, the devastating images that we've seen coming out of Ukraine, I mean, it's 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 really tragic. And my my thoughts and, and heart go go with all the folks out there in Ukraine. Um, 
But the, the crisis really started prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Prices were already starting to increase. So it started over quarter. a year, uh, well over a year prior to that. It did. Yeah. You know, part of it was a supply shock, right? You had less investment uh, following COVID. And then it was a demand shock um, from higher demand with people coming out of COVID and higher economic activity. Um, so prices started really increasing, uh, you know, in a serious way, at least for natural gas, um, and particularly in Europe and in Asia in third quarter of 2021. Um, and, and you saw already at that time, a lot of cargoes getting diverted into Europe because there was a market signal to do so. Um, but yeah, to your point, you know, for the last five years or maybe even a little bit longer, we've had an enormous sort of reflowing of investment outside of traditional hydrocarbon projects that are needed to keep prices at a reasonable level, um, in favor of sort of more, uh, politically desirable, you know, wind and solar projects that have far less energy density um, that are non-dispatchable resources. Um, so I think that the sort of seeds of the current crisis were sown in years of lack of investment, not only in LNG, um, but also uh, coal and oil um, across the board. So it's um, then the question becomes, do people sort of set aside their moral scruples or what they've said were their moral scruples and start investing in projects that were, you know, politically undesirable prior to this crisis. And I think we've already started to see that again, both in the signals that we've seen from the administration and uh, from the financial community. Um, I think I, I'm not sure if you saw, but uh, Jamie Dimon last week or the week before said that we need a Marshall plan for energy and LNG in particular. Um, so I think the financial community is recognizing the role that LNG in particular plays um, to meeting both the ESG goals and also the energy security goals um, that most people tended to ignore um, because they were sort of lulled into, a, I think, a false sense of security over the last decade. Um, yeah. And when so. you ha when you have it and I mean, these are co complex things of understanding, I think, um, understanding where folks are near-term shortfall of investment versus a longer term. And I, I do think there's a, a we, we, there's a reality check for, for a lot of folks, and even in the industry, it's hard to understand of this because we talk about a shortfall of investment, but it's really sort of, you know, the implications of a near-term shortfall of investment versus sort of a, a longer term and, and, and the role of this, these, the, the pressure and weight and everything that COVID put on it, which was COVID was a, a moment for to really accelerate and put the the foot, the pedal on, onto the metal on accelerating the energy transition, which is um, just harmful in so, so many ways. And it not it's not real. It was just an, an opportunity sort of seized by so many um, different groups and entities that this was a great chance to look, we saw what happens when you shut down the economy and no one uses crude oil. Um, and let's just do this in the future. And I think the International Energy Agency I went back and like looked at their figures and I mean they show nearly a it is a massive drop in their in their net zero 2050 plan in 2030 
to reduce from the natural gas levels that we have now, it's like a 60% drop in demand from now to 20, um, to 2030. So we're in 2028 years from now. It's just a massive curtail. And I'd show the chart, but it's, it's black and white. And it, would, it wouldn't do much good. But it's, it's ridiculous. And um, that being said, I mean, I, I'm not giving any sympathy with, with OPEC and OPEC Plus and being in bed with Russia. But there, that's the reason why folks are not uh, giving the International Energy Agency credibility is because you can't say that. You can't say we we need this energy, um, and yet we can't, one, in the same report, in the net zero report, say we can't invest in it and any more oil and gas investment now. Um, so you're, that's not just a signal, that's a direction, um, and that's a policy orientation. And then it's saying, you know, we have to drop this consumption. Well, we're just, we can't drop it. And I think I've, I've told you guys, um, you've, you've heard me on multiple platforms and podcasts and different things talking about, you know, I'd bet everything I have long that gas, not necessarily. I, I mean, I do think these price levels are coming down the, the world that we're in today, the shortfall we're in today, it's going to look a lot different 18 months from now, even, even a year from now. Um, I don't think, I think it's going to be sustainable from a price perspective, but it's not going to be nearly where we're at because, production responds to these price levels. And so does infrastructure and investment um, outside of the US and Europe. Um, everyone else is going to be drill baby drill on on and producing this stuff. So I just think it's really important that we're sort of at this near term inflection point where, you know, COVID was a reality check. We did have a short, we, we dropped and um, we certainly dropped it in Europe. And that was a big, big thing is that, you know, not just for maintenance because of COVID. So, I mean, it was in the UK, you didn't have folks actually working offshore because of COVID. You didn't have maintenance on actual offshore production. Um, and then you just, they, they weren't interested in producing it. And the EAA put out some beautiful charts of showing, you know, U, uh, UK and European natural gas production um, and watching that decline from 2010 to 2020 and then watching consumption basically not decline, essentially sort of flatline. And obviously the imports from Russia grow um, because they simply aren't producing their own natural gas. Um, and that was from signaling. That was a, a 10 year span that we can see of direction of what investment looks like from signaling from the political side that, hey, we're not interested in investing in fossil fuels anymore. Um, and so we're not going to invest in it and we're not going to even maintain our facilities and we let it drop. And that uh, that gut wrenching sort of that started this whole thing, which was the winter. I mean, the, the cold winter in in China or the cold winter in Asia, which was that that is winter or beginning. That's the very end of twenty or end of twenty twenty one, beginning of twenty or sorry, end of twenty twenty, beginning of twenty twenty one, and then we have this this uh, on a late spring cold snap in early twenty twenty one, which is also by the way when Russia started their. Um, started doing stuff around April 2021 and started signaling to the world that stuff was going on. So that that's been in the works for a while. And and then you sort of had this massive drawdown throughout the course of 2021 on natural gas. No one cares over the summer so much because the weather's good and nobody was freaking out. And then obviously the fall came and you had shortages around the world. And that might get us into, I want to make sure we've you know, you, we can double back and make sure we've honed in on global LNG demand and the European crisis. But I think that this um, this China piece in Asia was that it's it's important for listeners to appreciate. And I've said this on a number of podcasts, but appreciating in in that what happened in 2021 in the fall, um, it's playing out now. I mean, it's playing out uh, in in tenfold now that. We drew down on natural gas supplies globally. It's partly why you know it, China has increased so much of their natural gas imports 
recently, but we drew down natural gas supplies, but we drew on everything. We drew on hydro, we drew on coal, and China didn't have enough. So China has 70% of their grid is coal, um, if not more, or, or sorry, um, is hydropower. And when this, when they didn't have enough rain, and that was across the world, we had that in Brazil, we had that in Europe, we had that in the UK, everywhere that had hydropower, there wasn't enough hydropower to be provided, there wasn't enough sun for solar, and there wasn't enough wind for the wind. And so all those factors, in addition to the intermittency, um, it was exacerbated. Um, and then China didn't have enough coal either. So they really sort of freaked out and they, they pulled on the gas side and then everybody was doing the same thing. And it's gotten to, that was sort of the, that was the fall situation, but that's bled all the way into now. And then we have the, obviously the war, the war in Ukraine. So it was, it was months and months in the making. And then take into account what you just explained of that that backdrop of sort of underinvestment and the lack of signaling and the lack of interest. And I listened to a bunch of podcasts, you know, just, just this morning on, you know, type in LNG into your, you know, your Apple podcast and listen to what you hear. And you're still hearing a ton on climate change, on investing, on where the administration is at, on where other, you know, where, where's France at, where's Germany. And that, that does not bode well for, for just the market in general of like the certainty of, of they need the natural gas, but, people still don't know where wh how things are going to balance out on the ESG side. Yeah, I'd love to pick up on two things that you said. Again, lots to unpack there. Um, but I did want to hit on two things. You know, with COVID, um, we saw not only a decline in demand for pretty much all commodities during that time, especially ones that involve transportation, um, but you saw a decrease in carbon emissions during that time, right? And everyone was really excited about that. Like, wow, we're on the right track. What people didn't recognize is that we need to have that level of decline in carbon emissions every year to achieve those sort of net zero ambitions that are set out by the IEA. Um, which brings me to sort of my second point. Um, you know, there's an old joke about a physicist and engineer and economist who are on a deserted island and they come across a can of beans. And the engineer and the physicist say, okay, well, let's come up with these really ingenious plans to open this can of beans so we can eat dinner tonight. And the economist says, no, 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 that's complete nonsense. Let's just assume a can opener. And I think that the IEA has been sort of living in the land of magical can openers. <laughs> um, there's a lot of... Um, maybe magic beans as well. Um, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> maybe. Uh, well, yeah, there's something about Jack's uh, beanstalk, green beanstalk. I don't know. There's something in there. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've been imagining that there's going to be all of these can openers in 2050 to achieve these goals. And I think that we need to recognize that, you know, one, let's, okay, one can opener is the fact that there are still 2 billion people who don't have access to energy and are not going to find it acceptable to live at a lower living standard as those of us in the OECD. Um, we, we, there are, you know, I think, what, what are the numbers? It's, I think, 40% of... Um, all energy is consumed in OECD nations, mm -hmm. and uh, we emit 33% of global carbon emissions, and we represent just 18% of the world's population. So when, when we're saying, oh, well, total energy demand is going to decline forever, um, I think that we're ignoring not only the, <laughs> we're ignoring the bulk of the people on the planet who are going to continue to consume energy across the board. Um, and that's not just natural gas, but that's coal, right? We've seen um, at high prices, China in particular has made it clear 
that their energy security and and getting people access to energy in general matters. So they're uh, kicking their coal uh, mining process into high gear. Um, I think another can opener is the idea of technology innovation. Um, I think it's really, you know, I think there's a lot of people who are putting necessary money into R&D um, for new energy in innovation, and that's deeply necessary. Um, however, you can't just, you know, plug something into your model and assume that costs will decrease across the board and therefore, you know, we're not going to need hydrocarbons in 30 years. Um, so I think, again, we really need to recognize, okay, there's a, an aspiration and reality gap. And for the last five years, we've been focusing on aspiration and we've had a really hard lesson in reality. And, um, you know, we need to continue investing in the energy that actually supplies uh, the quality of living that we have today and also to be able to pull you know, 6.4 billion people out of poverty. Hi, folks. Trisha Curtis. Apologize for that abrupt um, interruption with Renee right there. Uh, we're wrapping up this episode. So um, I'm turning this into a two-part episode where we'll have it. This will be a double header because we had a, an hour and 40 minutes of recording time with Renee. Fantastic episode that we just recorded and talked about um, what's going on around in the world, a quick roundhouse of the market. We talk about U.S. global natural gas LNG, what Tellurian is up to. Uh, so we um, are going to conclude the episode. This is part one with Renee Perong with Tellurian. Um, she does strategy at Tellurian. And we will uh, return uh, next week. Uh, so please make sure to take a listen. And we'll be uh, continuing our, our conversation on China um, and the European energy crisis and everything that's taking place today. So really look forward to talking to you soon, folks. Bye.